Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin keskin Lu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. All right, lads. So this week, it's a UK double feature. <laughs> yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about season four of The Crown. And we have a special guest, British food writer James Hansen, to talk about the Great British Bake Off because that is approaching its season finale and it's been quite a season. So um, what what have you been up to this week, Jenny? How, how's your week been so far? Uh, largely uneventful at home as usual. Um, I did make an apple cinnamon cake yesterday, so that was essentially Ooh. the highlight of the week i also did a costco run did you uh get a chicken bake or a hot dog or a pizza no i did costco? see the food court has like reopened although they took out all the the seating of course um right. i didn't stop for yeah. any of that stuff unfortunately next time get that chicken bake up chicken bake for me what about you Pelin? what have you been up to lately well i was technically on vacation this week which you know what does that even fucking mean not logging into slack i guess yeah like every day i wake up in my silly little apartment make my silly cup of tea and sip it and watch tv like <laughs> great great day. Uh, so i guess you know we can just get stuck right into uh the crown season four um mm-hmm. do you like i know that you know i'm the brit in in this in this conversation but do you want to give a little rundown about what the crown is for anyone that has never seen it doesn't know what it's about so the the crown is a is a Netflix series, um, a historical drama uh, about Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth II, um, and it follows essentially her her time from you know when she gets married and takes takes the throne at the young age of twenty five all the way to um, I guess eventually the the present. But this most recent season, season four, um, it's about specifically the time period um, between 1979 and 1990. So, of course, that covers a lot of really uh, significant figures in, I guess, like British monarchy and and sort of politics at the time, including uh, Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana. Um, And I know you're really excited to talk about these two figures in particular, Helen. So honestly, for me, when The Crown first came out on the scene, I really didn't care for it. And I think a lot of people didn't care for it. I did give uh, the first couple of episodes of season one a go because I really like Claire Foy and I I think she did a great job. But for the most part, I was completely checked out and I didn't revisit it at all until uh, Olivia Colman took over the role as the Queen in season three. That season I found to be far more enjoyable than the episodes of season one that I saw. And when anyone asked me, like should I watch The Crown? I'm like, yes, but just start with season three. That's exactly what I did per your suggestion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it is it is far more helpful because everything has been leading up to season four mm-hmm. in my mind. Like in terms of when I found out that they were doing something about the royal family, everyone was like, oh fuck, does that mean they're going to do one on Diana? And it's because it's such a contentious point in history for the royal family. It's basically the point in which everything changed for them so season three was great but we were just padding it out all the way up until this season and it's why it's so exciting you know in terms of like a general overview of the season there's a reason why this season is the best (laughs) and it is because like obviously on top of all the eventful things and all the uh, very prominent characters that are a part of it it's saying something about the monarchy in general because the first two seasons it's from a time that's completely irrelevant to now Um, what the queen was in the 50s and 60s is you know only boomers remember that Um, and and everyone else really 
their first memory, especially people our age, is of of um, the whole drama around Diana and and everything that happened mm-hmm. beyond that. Anyway, so it's been about a week since you know the Real Housewives of Buckingham Palace launched. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in terms of who's playing who, we found out that Gillian Anderson of you know X Files fame was going to be playing Margaret Thatcher, and that initially was very disappointing to a lot of Gillian Anderson fans because we love her and we don't want her to play an uh, an evil person. Also, Emma Corrin was playing the the young Princess Diana. Yeah, it's it's obviously because of uh, the the women that they're depicting. It's a great season for wigs. Um, Gillian Anderson's wigs as Margaret Thatcher, incredible. Like Margaret Thatcher's hair is famous, but I think they really kind of uh, really overdid it. I think for her wig in this one, but I'm enjoying every second of it. Her hair is like a it's a rock solid helmet essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's like very. She has very fine hair and a lot of it um but yeah it's uh so in terms of how this season is being received by critics by viewers it is kind of the consensus for the most part is that this is the best season of the crown so far i agree that like i mentioned like everything has been leading up until this point and what happens from this point onwards is really going to kind of torpedo the show into a different stratosphere <laughs> what were your thoughts on it did you enjoy the season yeah, like you said, season three, I, I zoomed through that basically just wanting to get to Princess Diana. And the season, it was really interesting, not just because of Diana, um, but because of the way they are kind of turning to show these different lights, you know, on the royal family and going so far as to portray them, you know, negatively or showing the ways in which they, they failed each other. They failed Diana. They failed um in so many ways, which from my understanding is sort of a departure from previous seasons when, you know, they want to show the nuances, the complications, you know, how hard it is sometimes, how lonely, but overall it was kind of a more sympathetic picture um, compared to what we're seeing now, of course, um, when they're up against the people's princess. It it proved to be really exciting and and tragic and uh, emotional. And yeah, I've, fucking hate the royal yeah. family which is i think rare for you as an american the the fascination with the crown even from the very beginning uh was a little bit bewildering to anyone around my age in the uk that was watching this um just in terms of um the type of family that you're from like if you are someone that is anywhere left-leaning you do not care for the monarchy you do not care for the royal family you understand it to be a completely useless uh symbolic thing of britain past it is something that is a symbol of tradition as well and all of these things especially in this season onwards kind of showcases how much that is cheapening and that has you know obviously everything to do with the fact that during the 80s because of thatcher because of diana uh, the monarchy became like truly understood to be ornamental and like the country has evolved past the need for them and they just uh they haven't caught up with that and diana especially is a really really good example of why they refused to embrace that because she was a way that they could have embraced modernity because she did because she was radical in the way that she uh for them anyway radical um in the way Mm -hmm. that she expressed her you know, uh, charity work in terms of, you know, her being a member of the royal family that hugged not just a person, mm-hmm. but hugged a person with uh, HIV and AIDS. Like, and, and, you know, that was such a pivotal moment for 
the awareness of that illness something like they just they resented that more than they embraced it but Mm -hmm. honestly like the the fantastic thing about this season is um i think a lot of people even my mum, and i think a lot of people that even like old enough to know her significance to it throughout the 80s even they didn't realize how young she was when she married charles and how young she was in her like just being picked up and dropped into this insane world uh, of mm-hmm. ridiculous you know tradition and 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 practice and whatever but th- that's why I really really enjoyed how she was depicted in this season because I think like they, they really took it home with the fact that she was 18 when they met well 16 when they met first 18 mm-hmm. when they started like I guess courting one another and then 19 mm-hmm. when they got married which that's I think insane. like at the time back in the 80s I don't think it was an issue honestly I think everyone knew she was young but no one was like oh my god kind of like a child bride like what the fuck is going on because Prince Charles was 30 31 um yeah like 12 13 years old. yeah but now obviously like we understand power dynamics and then her eating disorder and like people people didn't really understand that they didn't know it at the time but they also didn't really understand it later on not until like obviously her biography and everything came out but yeah just uh the the way that they portrayed her innocence in in this uh was i think done really well uh episode three which is called fairy tale i think is was one of the strongest especially with regards to kind of depicting her and 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 where she was this is the episode where they get married you don't see the wedding uh which i think was an interesting uh, interesting choice yeah and then you know just seeing her you know oil drop that she is being picked up and then put into this like huge water that the monarchy is and like just obviously they're completely unable to mix because the monarchy and queen elizabeth and prince charles they just refuse to understand her or refuse to have any kind of empathy towards her oh i think was was it this episode where they were you know the queen was talking to her mother and and her sister and they were essentially like you know if she's gonna bend and if she doesn't bend then then she'll break um and that's just how it's always been but this new element this like really fragile vulnerable emotionally open element um the question is whether you know she would bend or whether it would destroy her with regards to margaret thatcher she died in 2013 and there's still videos of nans being passed around on twitter celebrating it (laughs) i personally did pop a bottle of champagne when i found out that thatcher died it was a happy day. It's so rare. It's so rare that these terrible people die. But Margaret Thatcher and Gillian Anderson. What did you think of her performance? Well, I have to ask, like, how... Like, did Thatcher really talk like that? That is the most... Yeah. You know, attention-grabbing yeah. thing yeah. about Anderson's performance. Yeah. So, um, obviously, Gillian Anderson is way hotter yeah. than Thatcher. Thatcher looks like a f- fucking bird. Like, literally. But there was a moment where I was looking away. Like, I think I was, like, scrolling on my phone when I just started watching it. And I was just hearing mm-hmm. her. Um, they sound exactly alike. And more than anything, I am completely astounded that Gillian Anderson did not use any prosthetics. Didn't use any, like, orthodontic situations inside of her oh, mouth. Oh, wow. Um, that is all Gillian Anderson's face. Because the other thing that I thought was really, really exact was kind of like her facial tics. Yeah. Because Thatcher had, you know, the downturn yeah. mouth. Like, there's just the standard British gargoyle type look. But then obviously she had a tremor, which Gillian Anderson really, really zoned in on and did such a good job. And especially with her posture too, just like her stiffness. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic character acting, honestly. Like, I, th- I think um, she did great. Yeah, what, yeah. I, what I found interesting about you know like 
Thatcher as they present her like in as this character you know sort of the way they pull on I guess like different sympathies um sympathies it's like sort of a ping pong between sympathies or empathies versus like repulsion by by this this figure um which I I would but the way they they sort of portray her you know in one in one episode, like she goes to you know Balmoral Lodge in Scotland with the royal family, and she stays with them, and you know sort of like presents her in a better light, where she is like a person who likes to work. They are a family that has done you know virtually no work in their lives. She is like the she's like the almost a, a victim of the family's you know false sense of of modesty when they play act and role play as you know humble people traipsing through the woods they sort of make her the butt of the joke they are not kind to her that sort of elicits some sort of sympathy but that's like sort of in contrast with you know episodes that follow where she's portrayed as like this hard ass um miserable sort of prime minister who doesn't really give a fuck about her people doesn't believe in helping anyone um, so I thought that was really interesting. Like at first, you know, to an uneducated American viewer like myself, it's kind of watching her as this, you know, as a person. She's like, wow, they're really giving a hard time. And then later seeing, oh, okay, she's like costing the the UK like millions of pounds so she can have her war, have her little victory while, you know, unemployment is through the roof. While, you know, all these people are suffering so much because of everything she's doing for her own sense of warped patriotic pride or whatever. Yeah, it's funny that you say that about Balmoral, the the episode, which is one of my favorites, actually. When I was watching that, obviously, as someone that has hated Thatcher my whole life, is surrounded by people that hate Thatcher, I thought that was a really good example of how, sure, like, the monarchy and their little practices and their little tests are ridiculous. I think what I got from that was how remarkably joyless that woman is with regards to she has no care for the institution of of the country that she's in she's an incredibly selfish person she only likes things done her way and she resents having to kind of bend to the will of these people uh, because they are completely irrelevant to her policy making it's so funny watching the two different sides of the uk that i hate meet each other and that's why balmoral was so fascinating to me because it's white on white crime that one <laughs> like that that was just like there's honestly it's got nothing to do with it. anyone else that actually is suffering from the ills of both Thatcher and the monarchy but yeah she is you know in in terms of like how she was in terms of her policies she really is I, I thought throughout the season she really is depicted to be ghoulish and she was I guess there's like one sense of of something that you can maybe kind of commend her for being and I think it's a lot of her fans agree with this she's very like her conviction levels off the fucking charts and um as a woman in power obviously that's great for her I mean what good is that if she's still someone that is is uh oppressing people someone that is putting their country into like extreme debt and that kind of brings it back to that whole like toxic girl boss culture you know she was she set the precedent for that she's like the queen of it but yeah i i I think we briefly talked a little bit about episode five which is fagin and um to kind of give you a rundown of what that episode is about a man actually uh and this is obviously a true story a man 
breached uh, Buckingham Palace grounds and then found his way into the Queen's bedroom and for 10 minutes no one was able to come to her rescue and so they ended up talking. This dialogue, like a lot of dialogue in, in the season is fictional. Uh, this is I don't think this is actually what they talked about but it was my personal favourite episode. I would also consider it uh, my favourite episode probably you know the so the character they they make in this show to you know stand up for Fagan, he's this average guy. He's you know out of work as a painter decorator. He's lost custody of his kids. Um, his wife has a new you know partner, um, and he sort of lives in this kind of shithole of an apartment and is just like, yeah, his life sucks to be frank. And the unemployment lines are really long and there's nothing anyone can really do like his um his representative or his mp is like doesn't do shit to help him and so he's like what choice do i have but who can i go to to talk about how margaret thatcher is ruining this country for so many of us um you know regular people and what he's left with is oh i guess i have to go to the queen yeah i i i really enjoyed that episode because i think it did a a fantastic job of showing what 1980s Britain really looked like for the average, like, common man, basically. And it is, you know, with Thatcher's kink for austerity measures and um, her whole philosophy of, like, there is no such thing as society, which is something that she actually says and believed in. With that came the apparatus of the government, which should help him, is completely convoluted and is designed to fail him. Yeah. And this show like is best when it exits the palace gates, when it exits number 10 Downing Street, and it shows whoever is living in reality, basically, of that time. The reason why episodes like that are so important is because they come in so rare and few and far in between from one another. And I think that's also a, a really intelligent choice because this is a show about the royal family and... You know, we are peeking inside of that bubble, even though, you know, it's partly fictionalized. But every now and again, for us to exit and really kind of see, it's also jarring to the viewer. And it really kind of brings home what it is that they're trying to say. And I think uh, Fagan was a really good example of how it just kind of really rode it home in terms of like what Thatcher was about, the complete toothlessness of the Queen and what she could ever do. But yeah, if if you're interested in 1980s UK and Thatcher and if this was like kind of whet your appetite a little bit, I would recommend two pieces of culture that you can get into. The Small Axe Anthology from Steve McQueen. I would recommend Red, White and Blue, which uh, stars John Boyega. Mike Lee's films are fantastic, uh, especially Meantime. So um, a question that I wanted to ask you, how much of the fact that most of this is fiction uh, bothered you or did it not bother you at all? I don't think it bothered me because I, you know, obviously I came with the understanding that this is a fictionalized, you know, dramatized version um, of some historical events that have actually happened. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of, it raises that interesting question of like, you know, as we seek to depict history, you know, can we just sort of go for the historical fact, historical accuracy, or do we need to add these elements of drama and and human sort of human drama um, to make it palatable to the average consumer. And if so, like, is that, is that good? Is that bad? Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's like a very macro question that you ask about anything that is, is uh, based on a true story or whatever. I personally do not care 
for the accuracy of these people. I don't care if they don't like it. Um, I certainly... I certainly don't care if if um, it shows them in a negative light. We know that the dialogue is fiction, but I think, like you mentioned, the sentiment was is probably accurate. There have been enough uh, royal biographies, both autobiographies and written about them. I think that you can piece together what the sentiment was of, of any and all of these people at any given time. But certainly fuck him like that's kind of where i'm at um the whole thing about this was uh especially when it first started was like oh are they going to showcase the the monarchy in a, a sympathetic light yeah i think for some people that are receptive to that of course it will but for for, for those like me who really honestly could not give a fuck if the monarchy collapsed tomorrow um this is purely entertainment value you know and if if you need to boost that entertainment value a little bit to make it seem a little bit more interesting to pull some talent out of these very very good actors and actresses and and you know to really kind of put your foot in it with the cinematography go for it man like you're making art at the, at, you know essentially and i think that's been the issue right is um a lot of the royal members of the family either don't like it or have not been watching it which i think is a lie i think they've all been tuning in <laughs> but they're they're regular uh weekend viewings in in their grand chambers but yeah, there's overall, um, it, it, it is like turning what was previously, I think, more of a sympathetic portrayal of them into something a little bit more pointed and um, yeah. sharp, which is uh, a really kind of refreshing change. Oh, um, sure. Like you said, there's a lot of pro-royalty, um, just like fandom out there. And this is like one of the, the few things of this sort of scale of mass entertainment value that is mm-hmm. sort of leaning into the opposite direction right now. Yeah, I, th- I think this is certainly a vindication for anyone in England who doesn't understand the fascination that Americans have with the monarchy. And I think this is a wake-up call for a lot of American fans of the monarchy because it's only going to get uglier from here on out. Like next season is going to be especially messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this week we have a special guest, James Hansen. He's a British food writer and associate editor for Eater London. Um, brief disclaimer, he is our colleague because we all work for Eater. Anyway, uh, James has been covering uh, Bake Off for Eater London for a couple years now, including these really insightful and hilarious recaps every week. So we thought it'd be good to invite an expert like him to talk about everyone's favorite comfort watch and the current season, which will come to an yeah, end. Yeah, so this, this is week. in anticipation for the season finale, and it's been a bit mm-hmm. of a weird one this season, right, James? It's been pretty weird, yeah. Well, for me, it's been kind of exactly what you would expect from a pandemic era Bake Off, which is interesting because the narrative before it came out was that Bake Off was going to be the kind of soothing balm against all the other external woes in the world right now but i'm not sure that's really come to pass yeah yeah so for any for anyone who has for some weird reason never heard of great british bake-off don't know what it's about could you kind of give us the tldr bake-off is a nominally competitive baking show uh as the title suggests it's (laughs) supposed to be great and supposed to be british and is loosely both and it takes contestants through the 10 i think episodes Mm -hmm. and the whole deal is that each week they show their mastery or lack of it in a different baking discipline uh and you've got the two judges who are currently paul hollywood and prue leaf paul hollywood is a a white walker who likes bread oh my god 
Incredibly accurate. And I think I'm borrowing that reference from Alison Robicelli, actually, so credit Alison for yeah. that. Mm. And True Leith is a necklace-wearing Brexiteer. So. She's also 80-something years old, which well, yeah. would make sense with her politics. But it, it's pretty shocking to me because she, she does look younger than she actually is. She does look yeah. like... She, she does. She looks about 60, 65 or something. So I don't know, man. Keeps it tight. Keeps it tight. <laughs> Bad gal prove <laughs> keeping it tight at the age of 80. And then, uh, of course, the hosts are a big component of the, the, the show as well. So currently hosted by Noel Fielding, who, you know, is like beloved generally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this, this season has a new host, Matt Lucas, um, who replaces Sandy Toxvig yes. from, from previous so, seasons. So um, I guess what my, my question is, why has this show been so popular before? And what is it about this year? It has kind of dwindled a little bit in its um, entertainment value. Yeah, so I think the overriding theme of Bake Off is that it has, I think, in a way that other food shows, I think, don't. It sort of has two key appeals in that one of it is the baking and people who are into baking but it also has this very um like earnest kindness to it but what has happened particularly this season the season before is that it seems like there is more of a willingness on the part of the judges uh both in terms of their actual judging but also in terms of the challenges they set to sort of manufacture or confect drama and one of the biggest qualities that Bake Off has as opposed to other quasi-competitive quasi-reality shows is that it doesn't manufacture drama whereas in this season and the one before it, it kind of seems like the show has Definitely not fully gone in that direction, but just introduced it in a way that is noticeable enough that it's kind of meant that it's lost its whole vibe. And I think the pandemic and the conditions of filming within the pandemic have only exacerbated the sense of a show that like now needs, I think, quite a significant revamp to continue being successful. Yeah. I mean however good Bake Off was ever going to be, the idea that, you know, 11 people in a tent were going to prove to be an um, insulating force for good against a global pandemic was, you know, on the naive spectrum. Um, and it's not surprising that has created a season where the, the general standard of baking seems lower. The sort of making of, I wouldn't say elementary, but like mm, sloppy mistakes. Yeah has increased and like, that's not surprising because it's utterly mad to be filming a show as technically and mentally demanding as this in such a both temporally and mentally constricted framework. And yeah, I think a lot of the viewers have reacted to it with these like varying levels of expectations like um to plug in eater colleague madeline davis davies she wrote um for eater.com basically saying like the great british bake-off is no longer this sort of like bomb and you know why did we expect yeah. that it was supposed to save us from everything going on in 2020 and maybe we need to develop uh healthier coping mechanisms <laughs> which is probably true yeah no Never. What I would add as well to that sort of general vibe check on Bake Off, I guess. I think another part of that is that I do feel that there is a difference between camaraderie, which 
is evident on most competitive cooking shows, but most evident on Bake Off. Mm-hmm. And this, like, quite, I personally think, weird devotion to this sort of very twee British kindness, which gets painted onto the show consistently. Uh, and I don't know, I find it quite weird. It is weird. It's weird because, like, you and I both grew up in, in England and we know that our lot aren't nice. it's not and that's 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 the issue right is like everyone pretends to be nice and there is like the veneer of it but it's it's the most passive aggressive country in the entire world like we we invented passive aggression and you don't really get to see that well i i kind of saw it this season i think i think there's a lot of like you know there's compliments after someone gets like a good good um review for for their Mm. making and then everyone's like well done and everyone's just like yeah all right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean no lottie sura as well um and in recent weeks dave dave is really passive aggressive oh yeah Yeah, dave loves oh he loves it he absolutely loves it as much as he loves mexico as demonstrated he does oh my god so so that's that's one thing i that's one that's one thing i wanted to talk to you about is um almost every contestant on on this season has been pulling a lot from the world with regards to their making uh i guess as a way to to set themselves apart from everyone else yeah i mean i guess in some ways it's it's good to see because it's good for all of middle england to see but there was one week right Uh, yeah yes there was the week was japanese week everyone it was japanese week (laughs) the Japanese week, which I described in my roundup as an Orientalist mess. It so I feel the thing with Japanese week was once they decided there was gonna be a Japanese week and they were filming Japanese week, you can start first with the fact that the judges have clearly little understanding of Japanese baking culture. Mm-hmm. And then so the judging wasn't great, but the thing is is that it's not clearly entirely the judges responsibility within the show itself to do anything more than judge what is put in front of them Mm -hmm. so for the technicals they aren't allowed to practice but for the showstopper and the signature they are which means that therefore at some point ahead of time it may have been constricted because of the pandemic the bakers are given a brief and that brief will have been created by tv researchers who have determined what they're going to do for japanese week and what they chose to do for japanese week was nikuman which is the Japanese name for Chinese baoji. It's not even like a Japanese product first, but it is not as if there weren't myriad actually Japanese options that they yeah, could have chosen. This was, this was also my beef with it, was from beginning to end, this is a production fail. Yeah. All of the producers fucked this up. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, the executive producer or the more senior producers, that's kind of where the buck stops because they're the ones Mm. that green light something. But I'm sure a lot of the time, like this is usually what happens with British TV when they're bringing in anything international that most of Middle England isn't aware of. They try and find that little central middle ground between... Yeah, uh, being actually authentic and being completely ridiculous. Yeah, and I'm sure that's what it was. It's just it was just disappointing because it could have been such a great opportunity mm-hmm. as as an authority uh, and as a trusted source to be able yeah. to kind of showcase that culture in a in a more exact way. Yeah. Um, and they completely botched it. So so the ringer had a really interesting piece on like a five step plan to 
Saved Bake Off, um, which some of you may have read. We'll link it along with a lot of other stuff in our show notes. And I want to sort of go through this and see what you think, James, and, and you, Pellin, of each of these suggestions. So the first one is to get rid of Paul Hollywood. Paul Hollywood's retire bitch. Yes. yes. He, <laughs> I just think for Bake Off to progress, both in terms of like improving the whole kind of terrible eurocentrism as of it all and to just be a better program it needs new judges like they both need to go i think hmm. yeah so as the the url the slug for this ringer piece says paul hollywood must be stopped but now moving on to like the actual challenges another suggestion is baked goods should look like baked goods yes no <laughs> rapid fire judgments. i think it depends on the challenge i mean look the cake bus were incredible i think we can all agree yeah they were yeah. We were talking about that. We agree with um, that. But no, I don't really agree that they should always look like baked goods. I think I understand the thrust of that argument, which is that the challenges are too much about aesthetics and not enough about skill. But I think that that can only be changed by slightly changing the judging. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um Next one. Technical should be about technique. This is one that Pellin and I were Ooh. arguing with about a little bit before before recording started. Um, but yeah, tell us tell us your your wait. What's your case. argument though first? So the issue, I mean, the 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 thing that it's saying is that it should be about like everyone should know what the thing is, so mm-hmm. that then they can technically do it better. Right. Okay. I think. If you are a skilled enough baker, it's about your gut instinct. It's about your intuition. You might not know what it is, but it's about following direction and trusting your own judgment. And I think that is a marker of skill as well. So I don't think that everyone should know exactly what the technical is. Okay. And Jenny's point out. Yeah. What, what about you, Jenny? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it, it is, it's more about like whether or not the, the technical is setting up the bakers to fail, which in a few different cases like all of them have like soundly failed um and like produce terrible products so that's kind of i i guess where the my argument comes from where you know even if it's if it's more obscure people won't have heard of it then like give a little more instructions or be a little more generous with time instead of Mm. just like handing a blank piece of paper to them and be like all right how about it you have two hours the thing takes two and a half hours to bake I agree. Okay, last last point of the ringer piece. Cookies or biscuits should be allowed to be moist. Uh, Pellen, what's your yes, yes, no verdict on that? Okay, James, yes, what about obviously. you? Okay, uh, I'm a yes as well. So we have sort of cross-Atlantic consensus. We have international consensus on this. Cookies and biscuits should be allowed to be moist. Great. So finally, let's talk about predictions for who will win. And, you know, along the way, like who you've been rooting for, maybe they got eliminated, maybe they're your favorite. Um, but just, yeah, like what's the lay of the land? Who do we think will win? And who do you wish, you know, was still in the running to possibly So win? I think that this final is not going to be a contest. Mm-hmm. Pe- Peter is going to win. Yeah. He's going to win by yeah. like, a, he's going to win by a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You don't you don't think there's a chance that like there could be some sort of underdog narrative with like Laura, say for example, somehow rising up and, and taking no, her own? It's a short answer. Okay. Yeah, this the the odds are stacked in, in Peter's favor. He is he is a, a shining twenty year old baking elf who <laughs> he's just sort of like programmed to win. And I that is most likely gonna happen as I think our general yeah. consensus. Um now very briefly, like who do you wish was still in the running? Like, who is your your you know hands down number one favorite from the Lassie. season as a whole? Yeah, same. Yeah, 
Lottie's a legend. Yeah. I'm going to give Sura a shout out as well. Yeah, I love, I love she, Sura. Gone, gone too yeah. early. Seriously. She also had really, really good energy. But yeah, yeah Lottie by far was. Yeah. She was definitely a fan fave. Um, I was also, for some reason, inexplicably fond of uh, Mark L. Irish oh, Mark. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Woke King. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Oh my god. He did, you know, he single-handedly did more for cultural awareness for the average Brit watching the Great British Bake Off did than the Great British Bake Off, personally speaking. Yes. <laughs> Just, yes, that's accurate. Yeah, he's, he's like, worldwide. I also, I like Tamine as well. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, there was... Yeah. She she called out jelly like jelly cake. Um, she was like jelly is very Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was superb. That was very good. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, her main gone too soon. Seriously, she should have been in the final. Um, yeah, she should. Okay, so the I, I guess like before you go, what would you like to say to the American viewers that seem to think they were all a bunch of like weirdos that have weird words for things and eat whole lemons it, in, yeah. in fat. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pudding. You use the word candy. Yeah. What's exactly. what I mean? Th- there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, what a comeback. Love that. <laughs> can, I mean, A, use the word candy, and B, your candy is terrible. You're all fascinated by our royal family, and that is weird. So enjoy it. Yeah. It's a Enjoy trade-off. your monarchic fantasies. Yeah. They're all bastards. <laughs> you, enjoy, you enjoy the fantasy, and we'll enjoy our Mr. Kipling cakes. Okay, I'm feeling uh, sort of like I'm in hostile territory right now, so I'm going to end this. Um, thank you so much, James. Um, is there anything of yours you want to you wanna plug yeah. to take this opportunity to promote uh, Hint Hint Newsletter or other... I was support? on Substack before Glenn Greenwald et al. came on. And yeah, I have a food media, I suppose, newsletter called indigestion on substack so if you google indigestion the gastrointestinal problem and substack you will find it it's a a free weekly food media kind of roundup with some cultural discussion at the start of it and then for people who want to give me their money uh there's a weekly interview with interesting people in the food writing world i will also plug eat london's great eat london is great it is great so yeah, okay, read James in his newsletter, indigestion.substack.com, read him on Eater London, read him on Twitter, um, all the places, and we will, again, link to all this stuff in the show notes. Um, thank you so thank much, Thank you James. very much for having me. Okay, now is when we would usually be talking about culture, um, but we're going to be skipping that this week because we've already talked a lot, um, and we sure, we're sure you're tired of hearing from us. So this is what we've been watching this week. Um, if you're watching anything that you think we should check out, of course, you can email us at criticismisdead at gmail.com, um, or find us on Instagram and Twitter, criticismisdead. We also have extended show notes, including links to everything we've been talking about, plus bonus, uh, shit at criticismisdead.substack.com. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Rate, review on Apple Podcasts. Yes, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. See you guys next week. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelham Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Zhang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.